right, saints, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Now, for those of you that um, we did put this on the, the website so you knew of it ahead of time, the message today is, you know, on tithing in a sense, in a sense. I'm going to do that. So if you would have looked at the website, you would have known not to show up today. But if you didn't and you showed up, this is your problem. We put it on the website long enough for you to make other plans. And if you didn't, here we are today. Now, again, like I said, the, the message is, is titled, um, in, in a sense, Tithe, Duty, or Desire. But understand, we're not going to be looking so much at tithe in a sense. We will, as, as the principle here that the author of Hebrews begins to expound to us. But the message is deeper than that. The message is what is the message that this here direction of tithe that you're showing us here in the first part of the, the chapter of Hebrews, how does that apply to the bigger picture, which is what we always want to look at? Not just these little tiny nuggets, but how does it apply to the big picture? And that's what we're going to see here as we look at this one little principle that here, as the author of Hebrews opens up tithing as that picture we're going to look at, understand that the picture is much larger than this. You can take this one little nugget, once you understand what this is, then you apply it to everything else. And then you begin to be overwhelmed overwhelmed by how good God is and overwhelmed by Jesus, your sacrifice on the cross has done this for me. You giving me your spirit in my heart has begun to transform all these things that at one point the law began to, in a sense, picture, mandate, dictate, but now we're, we're free in you. Let's begin by looking at this passage. It opens up very simply here in, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abraham gave a tenth part of all. And that's all we want to look at. We want to look at this mysterious Melchizedek. He comes, he meets with Abraham, he blesses Abraham, and then Abraham has this response. And so within the title of the message, we're calling it, you know, tithe, duty, or desire. And there's a, a reality to this because what we're seeing is there's three things total that scripture talks about, two here in the book of Hebrews. The first is this king of Salem, Melchizedek, the priest of the most high God, it says in verse one, he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. He meets with him first. Understand this king, this priest come and physically meets with Abraham. Now, after he meets with them, of course, if you're familiar with that passage, don't turn there at this point, but jot down the reference. In Genesis chapter 14, it opens up this in verse 18, then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High. So we see that, yes, not only does Melchizedek, this king slash priest, come and meet with Abraham, 
But then he does something beyond that. He gives to him bread and wine. We understand that as the elements of communion, but at the same time, it's also those things that would refresh him. He has been out. He's, you know, battled these four kings. Um, him and his servants and his friends came and they conquered them, brought everything back. And this king comes and meets with him first. Understand, what kind of man is Abraham that a king would say, I need to come and meet with you? And then the king says, let me give to you bread and wine. Now, understand that when Abraham first met God, remember there in, in Genesis chapter 18 where God comes in with a couple of angels and he says, I'm going to just meet with Abraham and Abraham sees him. And he says, oh, wait, wait, don't go anywhere. Let, let, me, let me make you some food and let me, you know, prepare something so you to eat. And so he says, all right, I'll wait here. So Abraham goes and prepares the food the only way he knows how. He goes in the tent. Sarah, make some food. Make some food. God's here. And so he prepares the food and the only way he knows how. He goes out to the young men. Of course, they kill the calf and, and you know, they, they prepare it. But that's... A man meeting the superior. Here this king comes and says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to refresh you. You should be the one as the lesser to do to me, but I'm as the greater. I'm going to show you in my humility. I'm going to give you the bread and the wine. I'm going to refresh you. And then not only am I going to refresh you, but then I'm going to bless you. How incredible is that? Now you have to keep this in your mind. It's a king coming to meet Abraham. It's not Abraham requesting a meeting with the king and the king saying, oh, and being magnanimous, of course, I'll let you come and grovel before me. No, this king comes and as the superior ministers to Abraham. And then from this meeting, when he receives this meeting from this king that is you know, incredibly humbling to Abraham that this king would come and meet him. He's then refreshed by this king as the king brings him the bread and the wine, says, strengthen yourself and be refreshed. And then the king comes and blesses him. How incredible is that? Now, compare this here as what Abraham is doing when all of this happens, it says here in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 2, to whom Abraham also gave a tenth part of all. Abraham is just saying, I need to offer to you some kind of response to what you've just done for me. And he gives him just a, a tithe or a tenth of everything that he had just had through the slaughter of the four kings and their armies. And so it's this, this desire to say, how can I give back to you? And he gives him a tenth part of all. So as we're looking to this, I want you to compare what Abraham does as he receives this blessing and he has a desire. There wasn't a law that says, hey, when a king comes and he gives you the bread and wine and he blesses you, then you offer to him this tithe. But if you take a look at the lower portion, when we get there into chapter 7, verse 4 and 5, take a look and I want you to see this comparison. Verse 4, now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch 
Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law that is from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. And now I want you to see this comparison. One is Abraham receives the, the visit, the king meets with him, then the king refreshes him with the bread and the wine, and then the king blesses him. Now, as soon as that happens, Abraham is responding with the tithe. But in verse 7, it talks about here the sons of Levi. Now, the sons of Levi, it declares, they receive a tithe from the people, that is, their brother and the rest of the Levites, and they receive this tithe according to the law. Now, what does that mean? It means it's a duty. It's a dictate. It's not an option. Now, you can desire to do that, but understand, even if you don't desire to do it, God mandates this response. And I find it interesting that that response is mandated there. Two passages to jot down. The first is found in Numbers chapter 18. I want to read it to you, verses 21 through 26. It says, Behold, I have given the children of the Levi, the children of Levi, all the tithes in Israel as an inheritance, in return for the work which they perform, the work of the tabernacle of meeting. So what God does is he mandates through the children of Israel, I want you to in a sense, be those servants that are going to be the ones who pay my servants, Levi, because they'll have no inheritance in the land. And what the work that they're going to do for me, a workman is worthy of his hire. And so I'm going to use you as that instrument that I will reward them for the service they do for me. That's all it's saying. They serve me and I want to reward them. And I'm going to use you as the vessel to do that. So again, Numbers chapter 18, verse 21. Behold, I have given the children of Levi all the tithes in Israel as an inheritance in return for the work which they perform, the work of the tabernacle and meeting. Hereafter, the children of Israel shall not come near the tabernacle of meeting lest they bear sin and die. So in other words, only Levi and the tribe of Levi, the priest and of course the priest of Aaron, they can go into the temple. And of course, the Aaronic priesthood, the high priest, he can go into the Holy of Holies, that only one time of year, and of course, that after a sacrifice for himself. But no one else can come. What it's saying is, you can't just approach God. You need to have a mediator. And so he's going to use the Levites as these mediators so that they understand how holy God is and that there is a mediator that's necessary. Now, keep in mind, they are going to be temporary mediators, mediators until what? Until the mediator, Jesus Christ, comes on the scene. He does his work, the final and only sacrifice for our sins, the one that not only just covers us but cleanses us 
And then we see here, verse 23, but the Levites shall perform the work of the tabernacle and meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. In other words, sacrifice for their sins. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generation that among the children of Israel, they have no inheritance for the tithe of the children of Israel, which they offer up as a heave offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites as an inheritance. Therefore, I have said to them among the children of Israel, they have no inheritance. So now we begin to see that there's this direction, there's this understanding that God says to the children of Israel, I want you to come and you are going to be the instruments to which the Levites who serve me will be rewarded for their service. Because, of course, a workman is worthy of his hire. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, beginning in verse 22, and I'm going to read down to verse 28, so you have a context, but it begins this, Deuteronomy 14, 22, you shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year, and you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide. The tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil of the firstborn of your herds and of your flocks that you may learn to bear, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. But if the journey is too long for you that you're not able to carry the tithe or if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you when the Lord your God has blessed you, then you shall exchange it for money Take the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. And you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen, for sheep, for wine or similar drink, or for whatever your heart desires. You shall eat there before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. You shall not forsake the Levite who is within your gates, for he has no part, no nor inheritance with you at the end of every um, third year you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it within your gates so we see here that it begins in verse 22 you shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain and the field that the field produces year by year. So if you're too far from Jerusalem and you have then this bumper crop or your cattle have a bunch of babies and you want to give that tithe to the Lord that will go to the Levites and it's too far. You don't want to carry all the livestock. You don't want to carry all the grain. He says, just exchange it for money. When you get to Jerusalem, then you can do what? Well, you can take that money and you can buy, you know, oxen and sheep that are there. Now, that worked out well and fine until what? Until it began being corrupted. And of course, we learn about that, how those people that were there, as Matthew describes it, there in the temple, when he came to Jerusalem there, when he comes through the, the Mount of Olives there on Palm Sunday, they wanted him to destroy Rome. And then what does he do? Instead, he goes into the temple drives out the money changers and those who who buy and sell you know the animals and he drives them out and he says you've made my house which should be a house of prayer into a den of thieves and so he cleanses it but initially it was supposed to be a place for a fair transaction but here the priest decided we know how to make money from it now understand that here we see that there is a law dealing with the tithe. 
Now, in our day and age, keep in mind that there has been in the church a wave that has gone through the church, and it's called the prosperity doctrine. Now, if you're not familiar with what the prosperity doctrine is, it says, and those who proclaim it is, listen, if you give to the Lord, then he's going to give you even more. And so if you give, God is required now to give you so much more. And so the people stand there and they tell their people, give more, give more, give more. And the more you give, the more you'll get. And I'm thinking if they really believe that, why don't they tell the people, just keep what's in your pocket, let us give to you. Because if we give to you, God's really going to bless us as a church. But for whatever reason, they don't get that part. But what happens is the, prepare, the prosperity doctrine, some people actually believe, and there's truth to it, but they believe that the ties are the key to their financial prosperity. Let me say that again. They believe through this prosperity doctrine that the ties are the key to their financial prosperity. Now, there is a truth of sowing and reaping. I want to share with you just a couple of passages so that you can at least gravitate and understand where these people are coming from. And there is a basis of truth that is behind what it is that they're declaring. The first one that I want to share with you is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And in verse 6, it makes this statement. It says, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. And so we see that there is this law of sowing and reaping. The more you sow, the more bounty you get. The less you sow, the less bounty you get. Every farmer knows this. If you plant two acres, you're only going to get so much. You plant 200 acres, guess what? You're going to get more. So it's just a law of sowing and reaping. However, what happens is this. There is a truth that is found in the Gospel of Luke, and I want to share it to you. It's found in Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 10. Just a couple of verses I want to read to you. Luke 16, beginning in verse 10, I want to read through verse 12. Jesus is speaking, and he makes this statement, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, which is money, who will commit to your trust true riches? Verse 12, and if you have been not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? So in other words, he's saying that, listen, everything belongs to God and you are his steward, you are his servant. And if you're not faithful with what is God's, why is he going to give you something that's for you? And so we see here that within this prosperity doctrine, they focus just on those verses to say the more you give, the more you'll get. Now, they are biblical truths, but they begin to twist them. So with the prosperity doctrine, we see that one group of people believe that the tithe is their key to financial 
prosperity. There's this other group that believe is the tithe is the key to the preacher's financial prosperity. And it's there. They believe it's the key to the church's financial prosperity. And that's the mindsets. There's the the one extreme to the other extreme. Here's the problem. There's another principle that here Scripture declares the Holy Spirit wants us to understand. And it's another position that nobody looks to. They look to this prosperity, but they think it's either the person who's tithing prosperity or it's the the, the church or the preacher who we're tithing to their prosperity. And granted, when you take a look at a lot of these ministries that proclaim this, you know, name it and claim it and blab it and grab it and financial, you know, prosperity, you see their ministries, and it, it is kind of obvious that they're really making out well. And you kind of wonder who's really prospering. Are all the people or are the ministries and are the preachers? So I understand the, the thought. I understand what's going on within the minds. But what does the scripture teach? Now, here we see that the author of Hebrews begins to open up this beautiful principle that he's going to later expound on as he continues in this chapter, chapter 7. We'll be getting to that on Wednesday. Now, he's going to use the tithing as a starting layer. In other words, something that you can begin to see the basic principle of what the Christian, what the Hebrew Christians need to stand on. In other words, duty versus desire. Why do you do what you do? And he's only going to use tithe here as this beginning layer to show a larger truth. And so as the author of Hebrews begins to open up this this principle, Scripture teaches that tithing, as we see it initially, is an act or a response of a desire, in a sense, an act of worship um, to God, not you know, just as any other act of the law can be an act of worship. Let me take you back to that passage. I want to read you one portion of Genesis chapter 14. I want to read to you verse 22. Now, in the context, I'm going to start again in verse 19, where he blesses him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So he's talking about how good God has been and how the victory was God's, not Abraham's. Abraham then gave him a tithe of all. In verse 21, now the king of Sodom comes in, interrupts this meeting, and said to Abraham, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. Now, how magnanimous is that? You did all the work. Just give me the people. You can have everything. Now, notice the response that Abram has in verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. 
Now, is, is here, Melchizedek tells him, God gave you this blessing. In other words, God is the one who's given you all this. He says, oh, I'm going to give back to God. And that's his whole heart. He has a desire to, it's not under the law. The law wasn't given yet. Nothing like that is. But notice his response in verse 22. He said, I have raised my hand to the Lord. What does that mean? That's what it means. I've raised my hand to the Lord. I, I've exalted him. I've, I've called on him. I've worshiped him. I've raised my hand to the Lord, the one to whom he said, he has delivered my enemies into my hand. I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. What is he saying? God is the possessor of all things. I possess nothing. God is the master. I am the servant. I am the steward. So what he's doing is when here Melchizedek says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to tell you what God has done. I'm going to refresh you and I'm going to meet with you. Then the king of Sodom says, I'm going to give you everything. It's already mine. How can you give it to me? These four kings took it all from you. It was theirs. I took it from them. He said, but I don't want anything from you because I don't want you to think or anyone to think that you are my one who provides for me. God is the possessor of heaven and earth. God is the one to whom all things belong. I'm simply a steward. Now, God gave to me, and that's what here Melchizedek said, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. God gave me all this. God gave it to me. Not you, not the kings, not myself. God did. And I'm so overwhelmed, I'm so overjoyed that how can I respond? And he responds by giving to Melchizedek the tithe. And so we see here that scripture teaches that this tithe is simply an act of worship. Just as any other act of the law can be an act of worship to God. Let me try to make sense of this because what happens is this. When he says, I've raised my hand to the Lord God, most high possessor of heaven and earth, what we're seeing is that the act of worship, what Abraham is doing by giving a tithe is almost like a pressure valve. Let me try to explain that. As a pressure valve, what happens is this. When God has refreshed you and blessed you and overwhelmed you with his goodness, and then there's something within you that just is boiling over, say, how can I in any way tell you, Lord, that I'm aware of what you've done, I'm aware of who you are, I'm aware of your goodness, and I want to respond so that you know that I'm aware of it. I know you know all things, but I want to respond in a very specific way that, that you can say, God, I'm aware now of what you have done. And that's what the law does. Keep in mind that here, this law that is going to be setting up of tithing is going to be simply a way to say, do you want to demonstrate what, that you know what God is doing, that you know what God has done, that you are grateful and so this act becomes an overflow of just Abram's heart of everything that God has done. Now, 
just as a note, I want you to understand that the law is a list of responses. Let me say that one more time. The law is a list of responses to the goodness of God. It's a list of do's. It's a list of don'ts. And each law that is there mentioned is simply a reminder or a pointer to the natural responses to something that you become aware of of God. So in other words, you become aware that God is the possessor of all things and he's blessed you with something. What does the law say? Well, the law then points out, well, there's a tithe. If you're overwhelmed by just how much God has blessed you with, then you can do this. You can tell God, I know it's all yours. I've known you given me all of this and I want to respond to tell you that I know it's yours by giving you back a portion of what is yours, that you can use it for your ministry, that you can use it for who you want, that I'm not telling you that it's all mine. I'm telling you that I know it's yours. So the law becomes simply a way that it's a, telling you it's a here's one more that should be a natural response to the goodness of God. Now, keep in mind that we as Christians, we will constantly be discovering something more that God has done. Oh, God, you did this. And when you focus on it and you are overwhelmed by it, then you say, how can I respond to this? How can I I act out showing you how grateful that I am and that I know that you did this specific thing? Well, amazingly, that there's a law that he's going to give through the the Levites that is going to say, well, if you're so thick, if you don't get it naturally, here's a law, and the law will be something to say, just in case you don't get it, the law says, here's something that if you focus on this law, you'll realize what God has done. And you realize that this law is only a response to what God has done. But the law begins to mandate it. And so each law becomes this natural response to something that you become aware of, of how God blesses and watches over us. And these laws are simply this. They're clarifications of the natural responses that if the heart was not aware of everything that God was doing, that the law is going to remind the person of a proper response responses of God you've loved me and you've done this and how can I respond in a way that will love you and a way that will love your creation and a way that will love people so understand that initially what happened was this we see in Abraham that the law was what it was already there in his heart he didn't have to have a law that says if you're overwhelmed do this why when he was overwhelmed he just did it but the problem is this God has initially put in the heart of every single man and every single woman and every single child a proper response. In other words, the Holy Spirit already shows us this is a good response to respond to what God has done. But what Romans chapter 1, and I want to read from verses 18 to 22, begin to declare to us is this. In Romans 1, verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, God has given you a truth. Now, what happens is this. Because of sin and our sin nature, 
we have a tendency of suppressing the truth. There's a natural response. In other words, become aware of what God is doing. What's our natural, what's our sin response? I don't want to be aware of what God is doing. I'm the master of my own destiny. It's fate that did it, not God that is doing everything in my life. No, God is that intimately concerned that he's affecting every single moment, second issue in your life. He's there. And you can either become aware of it or you can do what? I can suppress that truth. See, sin causes us to suppress the truth. So what does God do? Well, what God does is because sin comes into the world, he says, listen, I've got to find a way to show all of you what I naturally do. And if you focus on a law, any law, and you can take all 632 laws and focus on them, and if you focus on any one specific law and you dive into it and you contemplate it and you chew on it, you're going to realize that this is a natural response that should be in my heart of something that God has done, and I just wasn't aware of it. And once I realize what he's done, I'm overwhelmed by how good he is and how he blesses and how he refreshes and how he meets with me and he blesses me. Then I want to say, how can I respond, God? How can I give back to you? How can I do something to tell you, I know what you're doing. I know I see your hand and I want to respond. I'm so overjoyed. I'm so overwhelmed by who you are. But we see here in Romans 1.18 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. In other words, God has already shown you every man should have a natural response, should have a natural desire to look and see, God, what are you doing in my life? And when you see what he's doing, this natural response is, how can I respond and how can I bless you? Well, what may be known of God, verse 19, is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You look to nature itself, and it says, how does God take care of nature? How does he so intricately make everything perfect? And we realize, God, you are perfect in everything that you do. How good are you, God? And then when we see how good he is, then our response is, I want to worship you. I know not only did you do this in nature, you're doing this to me. You're ministering to me. And how can I be aware of it? How can I respond to it? And so in verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to become professing to be wise, they became fools. In other words, what sin has done is what? It clouded over our hearts. And it made our hearts, it should be a heart of flesh into a heart of stone that we can't receive these understandings naturally and by the Spirit. But what the law does is this. It points out, hey, check this out. Here's the do and here's the don't. And what the author of Hebrews just happens to do is he says, I'm going to give you just one do and don't. Let's look at the law of tithe. Now, the law of tithe, the children of Israel, 
were demanded a duty to say you must give a tithe. And they had to do it. Now, if they would have thought, why are we giving this tithe? Then they would have understood, oh my goodness, these priests are giving us the spiritual. These priests are giving us the eternal. These priests are giving us so much more than what we could be giving to them. There's a truth that I want to read to you just a portion found in 2 Corinthians. It may be 1 Corinthians. Hang on just a second. I hate that when I lose my notes. I'm going to give it to you just in case I don't find it. I don't want to have dead air here. But there's a truth, and I will find it, that talks about when... Oh, here it is, and I was right. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It makes a statement in verse 11 saying, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? So he says, we've given to you something that is alive, something that is eternal, something that is life-giving, spiritual truths. And you're giving to us something that is lesser. We've given to you the greater. You're giving us something that is lesser. You're giving us mammon. You're giving us something that's temporary, something that's temporal. And so he makes this statement, and I find it interesting that he says, we have given you the spiritual things. Is it a great thing if we receive or reap material things? We're giving you the greater. Is it a big thing if we receive the lesser? So the children of Israel, if their minds are open to what the tithe is, like, oh, these Levites are giving us what? Access to God. They're saying that we can't come, but the Levite can come for us, and the Levite can bring the sacrifice, and the Levite can offer the sacrifice, and the Levite can say, yes, God has accepted this sacrifice. Your sin that you gave the sacrifice for is covered. Now, not cleansed, but covered. But he did all that he could do. And he cannot do anything more. And so the access of God wasn't there, but he's given you access. Now think about this. As we begin to picture, say, okay, these priests did what they could do, and they would give a sacrifice, and the high priest once a year, after he sacrificed an ox for himself, could go into the Holy of Holies and say, Lord, we've given a sacrifice, and he knows that because he puts blood on the horn of, of the, the altar there, of the mercy seat. And then he says, goes on and says, you're forgiven. Once a year, he can go in, only once a year. And that's after he sacrifices an ox for himself, a goat for the people. He goes, you're forgiven. They're like, oh, thank you, thank you. I'm covered for a year. And that's it. Now think about this. Our great and merciful high priest, Jesus Christ, one sacrifice for all time. And he's now entered in behind the veil into that presence. We come with him behind the veil and we are ever there in the presence of the glory of God. And he sits at the right hand of God ever ever making intercession for us. That's something to say, God, that is worthy of saying, how can I respond? How can I respond? And so we're seeing here that what the law of tithe is trying to do is say, okay, there are responses that were in men from the beginning. Abraham shows that clearly. He needed no law to tithe. It was just a response to tithe. Now, what happens is this, as he goes and he now has this response, 
We understand that through Romans, sin has come, clouded our hearts, and we don't know how to respond. So God says, I'll give you a whole bunch of ways on how you can respond. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you these as a duty so that when you do them, don't just do them, but when you do them, focus on why you're doing them. But here's the problem of the religious man. He doesn't know why he's doing them. He doesn't care why he's doing them. All he wants to care about what? That I did it. I don't know why I did it. I don't care why I did it. I just want you to know I did it. Check off the list. Check off the list. Not, how can I respond? Can you imagine if your marriage was just checking off a list? Oh, my spouse needs this, check it off. Oh, my spouse needs this, check it off. Or rather than, wow, we have this intimate relationship that we communicate, we talk. How can I respond to it? How can I give? And not just simply checking off a list. It's, it's how can I bless? How can I respond? But we see here that the problem was what? The problem was that the law itself was clouded now, or, or the, the heart is clouded because of sin. And the law is just simply to say, I'm going to just poke through this hard heart to show you what should have been your natural response all along. Now note this, what God is going to do eventually is this. There's a passage in Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31. I'm going to read all the way down to verse 34 so that you can understand what it is that God had done in Abraham and what was beginning to be clouded over so that he had to give the law as a representative of here's all the things that you can do and don't do, and each one is a response to know what I have done to you. But in Jeremiah 31, verse or 30. 31, verse 31. So if I said 33, my mistake. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and I led them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant with which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this, verse 33, is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, and I'll write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. In other words, what? You're going to be like Abraham, though the father of faith. He simply believed, and he responded to my goodness. Now, verse 34, no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, know the Lord. In other words, do this in a response if you realize what he's doing. Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. In other words, you're washed clean and you have nothing more to worry about. Now, this is an incredible understanding of what the heart of God is. Now, eventually, we will come to Hebrews chapter 10. I want to read to you one verse that is a focal point that we're going to get to, but it simply declares what we've already learned. Hebrews 10, verse 16, this is the covenant that I make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their hearts and into their minds I will write them. 
And then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. This is God. This is his heart. And so the author of Hebrews really begins to develop this. And in chapter 10, he's going to add another layer to this whole thing. So what God is going to eventually do by his spirit, not by the law. Because what's going to happen to the law? Well, if, you, if you're going to be here next Wednesday, we'll develop it further. But as you go on in Hebrews chapter 11, two verses I want you to be aware of. You can read them with me. For the priesthood, verse 12, being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. Oh my goodness, if the priesthood is being changed... There has to be a change of the law. Now, in verse 18, a lot of you may want to strike this out from your Bible, but you have to keep it. It says, for on one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. What does it mean? God says, it's no more. I have annulled it. I have taken it away. I have removed it. And it no longer has that binding. If you've ever heard of a marriage being annulled, what does it mean? Just as if it never happened. And if God annuls the former commandment, what is he doing? Well, he said, I'm making the law just as if it never happened. As so, I'm doing the same thing with all of the Levites. I'm making that as if it never happened. So where he says in verse 12, for the priesthood being changed is no longer the priesthood of Aaron or of Levi, but it's the priesthood, what? According to the order of Melchizedek, Levi was temporary. Levi was so inferior that Levi, if you understand the beginning of Hebrews 7, was so inferior that as he was in the loins of Abraham, Levi, in a sense, gave tithe to this Melchizedek, received a blessing from Melchizedek. Everything that Abraham did, he's a representative of all of the children of Israel. He's a representative. Why? Because Isaac is in his loins, and then Jacob is in Isaac's loins, and all of the children, the 12, are in Jacob's loins. And so by Abraham doing it as a representative, all the other children in him do it by what? Default. And he's saying this tribe of Levi gives tithe to Melchizedek, receives a blessing from Melchizedek. Tell me which is greater. And of course, he's going to go on to say in Hebrews 7, 7, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Showing how this ministry of Melchizedek, that you are a priest, not for a while, not for a long time, but you are a priest Psalm 110 verse 4 says, forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So as we look to this truth and we begin to see here that what God is saying is you don't have to worry about the law anymore because the law in a sense is going to be annulled. Remember when we were reading our psalm this morning. Now, I know that as we go over it, sometimes you're just simply reading words and you're not really focusing on what's going on. But I've said many, many times that it's absolutely incredible that we would be going through this message today and be going through this psalm today. Why is it so interesting that we would be going through Psalm 108 today? 
Because in Psalm 108, in verse 8, the very last line in verse 8 says this statement. I'm going to read the whole thing because I want you to build up to it. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet for my head. And then he says, Judah is my lawgiver. Oy vey. Judah is my lawgiver. I thought Moses was my lawgiver. What are you saying? Judah is my lawgiver. Well, that is actually a quote from Genesis chapter 49. I want you to turn there, if you would, to Genesis chapter 49, because I want to show you where this verse actually comes from. Two things that I want to read in Genesis 49, and it is simply the prophecies that Jacob is going to give to his children. Now, for those that love the law, this is going to trouble you. For those that love life and grace and truth, you're going to be blessed by it. Because in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18, it says what? The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we see here, and I want you to gravitate to Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. It says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. In other words, Judah is going to be the ruling tribe. Judah is going to be the lawgiver. Now, how does that work out? I thought Moses was the lawgiver. How is Judah here the lawgiver? Now, until Shiloh comes, I want you to see here what the prophecy is concerning Levi. In Genesis 49, jump up to verse 5 for just a second. And I want to read verses 5 through 8. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Oh, here's the prophecy of Levi. Let's check out, see what he says. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their counsel. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Verse 8, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. I hate to say it, it doesn't make Levi sound so good. Judah's a lawgiver. Judah's going to be the one. And as we understand what, we see here that when it comes to being the lawgiver, a couple of passages I want you just to jot down. Don't turn them. Just jot them down. The first one is found in Isaiah chapter 33, verse 22. In Isaiah 33, verse 22, one more page and I'll be there. It makes this statement. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. See, when we think of Moses being the lawgiver, 
he kind of was, but he was what? He was an instrument of God. Because truly the tribe of Levi, if you listen to the prophecy, is what? They are cruel. They are wicked. And God says, I'm not going to enter into your council. But Judah, on the other hand, Judah will be my lawgiver. In the book of James, James chapter 4, verse 12, it says, There is one lawgiver and only one lawgiver, and we understand him to be the Lord. And so as James chapter 4, verse 12 declares, There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? See, there's only one judge, and it's God. And God becomes this lawgiver. And as the lawgiver of Judah, there's a scripture that you should pretty much be aware of. And it's found in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 34. I want to read just this one verse. Jesus makes this statement, a new commandment I give to you that you should love one another as I have loved you. In other words, let it be your heart that responds, not the law. And so what happens is this, and keep in mind that as we look to these truths, we see that what? The very first mention of tithe in all of the Bible is found in Genesis chapter 14, where Abraham gave a tithe, but it wasn't a duty. It was a desire. And this is the key to every single law. See, if, if you want to be bound up by the law and say, well, it's my duty to do this. Well, you can do that. But understand, God doesn't want it to be a duty. He wants you to be so aware of everything that he's doing that your heart is just bursting with how can I respond, Lord? How can I re respond in a way that tells you, I know what you've done, I know what you're doing, and I'm a recipient of this blessing? How can I respond in kind? And my heart that is led by the Spirit and the Word now says, here's the response. And it just becomes a natural response that I just love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength, and I just love people. It becomes a natural result. I don't need a law to tell me this when the Spirit of God is resting in me. And so he says, you don't need the law anymore. Why? Because you will be able to respond correctly to everything that God is doing. And so when you take a look at any law, just keep in mind, ask yourself, be a student of the word. Don't be just bathed with milk saying, oh, here's the law. Do it, don't do it, whatever you want. No, realize what it's there for. Realize that this law is simply something that should already be on your heart. That you don't have to do it outwardly as a duty. But if you are noticing what God has done, then you express this. You express it as a desire, as this pressure valve to say, if I don't get to express my love and my gratitude and my appreciation, I'm going to burst. And as he says, then express it. And, and in the response of God, you give me this victory. You've given me everything. How can I respond? In his heart, he says, I'm going to give you this tithe. I'm going to give you a tenth of everything that I had, and I don't want any of it. 
He said, I don't want it. I'm just I'm going to give you the tenth because it's yours, and I'm going to give the rest back to the people. And he said, with the exception of these other guys that helped me, they can take. I'm okay with that. And I love the heart of what we begin to see because we see here that all these responses of God's children before the law was written was already on their heart. Then sin comes in and clouds the heart. And we don't know how to respond. We don't even look to see what God is doing. And so the law says, look and respond, look and respond. Like, oh, okay. And then what happens? Well, now we don't need the law anymore because the spirit is in there saying, do you see what I did? You know, I'm so aware of what you've done. How do you want to respond? The way my heart feels right now is to do this. And it just so happens to line up with this is a law. And I can do this, and I can respond to this way, and it is the desire of my heart, not a duty, not I have to, but I get to do this. And how incredible is that? So what happens is this, is some are going to hold to the law. As Israel was directed to tithe, it's almost like a tax. You give one-tenth, one-tenth, one-tenth is God's, and the Levites are going to have these wages for all of their sacrifices and all of their service to God, they are going to be the recipients. You are the recipients of all these spiritual benefits. You're going to give them these material benefits. And so he warns the nation of Israel, and he does this in the book of Malachi. And I want to read you a passage. Now, keep in mind that what Malachi is, is it's that one key that if you really want to convict your body that they're not giving enough, this is the passage that preachers need to turn to. I'm not going to turn to it as far as a conviction. I'm going to turn to it as far as look at what the law demands. Look at what the law says. And he makes this statement in Malachi chapter 3, verse 7. It says, yet from the days of your fathers, you've gone away from my ordinances. You've not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord. But you said, in what way shall we return? He says, come back to me. He says, well, how should we come back? And he answers him by saying this, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithe and offering. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, that I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will be no room enough to receive it. That's the law. You've received these blessings and you're not giving to me. You're robbing me. That's the law. Now, what the love says is this. God, you've already blessed me. I don't, I don't want any of this. It's all yours. Every bit of this is yours. 100% is yours. I'm a steward of it. I'm a servant of you. You've given me this to be responsible for. I'm going to let you know how grateful I am that you let me be responsible for anything that's yours. And the way that I'm going to respond is this. This part is yours. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I, want, I want to let this valve release to show I know it's all yours. You've given me this 90%. I'm just giving you back that 10. And this is that heart. And so we see here this beautiful passage where it's the law, but the law makes he demands. Love says what? Just come back to me. Recognize what I'm doing, and this will be a natural response. And so we see here God is the owner and the giver, and we're just stewards of everything that's God's, servants of the master. And so we see here what? 
It all boils down to the greatest of commandments. Now, now you know the, the, the greatest of the commandments. Matthew, in his gospel, in chapter 22, verse 37 you know, begins to quote it, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and of course, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's simply a quote from the, the book of Deuteronomy, or the book of Numbers, um, chapter 6. Now, in that, it, it's called the Shema. Wait back, I am right, Deuteronomy chapter 6. And in that, it's called the Shema. And the way it's stated is this, let me simply read it to you. It opens up in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. This beautiful word that, that comes out, Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel. And so we begin to see Adonai Eloheinu. And it, it's, it's basically, you know, the Lord our God. And then he begins to say, Adonai Echad, the Lord is one. And so he makes a statement, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. He puts that in there. Now, this term strength is a unique one because when you love the Lord with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength, the strength, sometimes in your Bible it's translated strength, sometimes it's translated might. And so it means the human functioning by extension all your resources, and all your possessions. Now, I'm going to tell you how this Bible called the Complete Jewish Bible translates it. It says, And you are to love Adonai, your God, with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. So when you see strength, it's everything that you have. This is how you love him. And, and amazingly, that what we see is that it isn't a law to say, what are you doing on the outward? But the duty is what? What's already there on the inward? What's there in your heart? Are you aware of what God is doing? I want to give to you a couple of passages to jot down. The first is found in Mark chapter 21. And in Mark 21, beginning in verse 41, Jesus is there, oh, that, that can't be, it can't be Mark 20 because Mark only has 16 verses. Um, so it's either Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, let me think. Well, I'm going to just simply read to you that what began to happen was this, that Jesus had begun to go into the temple. Oh, Mark chapter 12 verse 41 it says this now jesus sat opposite the treasury and he saw how the people put money into the treasury and many who were rich put in much now he didn't go and see what people were putting in do you understand that's the law he saw how he wanted to know what was in their heart, what was going on, what is going on with the people, not simply what is going on on the outward. And so his whole heart is what? I want to see what's going on on the inward. Now, there's another passage that you should be aware of, and as far as talking about the heart, talking about those things, it's found in the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, I want to start reading in chapter 10, and I want to start with the first five verses. And then I'm going to jump over to verse 30. 
But in Acts chapter 10, there's a man, it says this, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man, one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed to God always. Notice, he's a Gentile. He's not demanded by the law to bring in a tithe. But what does he do? His heart is this. He gives alms. But notice what his heart is. He gives alms generously. I'm just so overwhelmed. I just want to give, and I want to give, and I want to give. He gave generously to the people, and he prayed to God always. And in about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid. He said, what is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, who's surnamed Peter. Notice what he says. Your prayers and your alms have come up to God as a memorial. God has seen it, he's anchored it, and he's written it down, and he's established as something that's permanent. And then when you jump all the way over to verse 30, it makes this statement. He said, so Cornelius said four days ago, as Peter now comes and he, you know, he meets with him, he says in verse 30, so Cornelius said, four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. You understand there's only two things that he does. He prays, which is, I want to love you, Lord, and communicate with you. And then he does what? He just loves people. It's almost as if his heart had the two commandments that God desired. Love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor. He gets it without the law. This is a Gentile with the spirit moving in his heart saying, this is, I want you to see. The law of God doesn't have to be written on the outward. It's already on your heart. He does it naturally. And so as he comes and he says, listen, your prayer has been heard and your alms are remembered before the sight of God. Verse 32, therefore, send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. And when he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent you immediately and you've done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear the things commanded by you. Then Peter opened up his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God has shown no partiality. And he begins to give this incredible message. And as he does, we begin to see here that as he's declaring these things about God and he's declaring these things about the Lord and he's talking how God raised up Jesus on the third day. In verse 44 and verse 45 of Acts chapter 10, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard the word and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the Gentiles also. Do you understand the difference? Duty versus desire. A law has to be engraved and etched on a hard heart or... It's just there in your heart. And God says, I don't, you don't have to teach your neighbor. You don't have to do these things. You don't have to tell them because it's going to be a natural response as you become aware of everything that I'm doing. 
We've already talked about there in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 how it's just a response to this incredible spiritual blessing. Now, I do want to share with you a passage found in 2 Corinthians. And the reason I want to share this to you is because it's a unique perspective as far as when it comes to this whole understanding of tithing and having it being just a part of your heart. In 2 Corinthians, I want to start in verse chapter 8, and I want to read to you verse 7 and 8. It says this, but as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in diligence, and in love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. He's talking about giving. He says, you're abounding, you're abounding in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in diligence, and your love for us. Let this be a response as well. Understand what God has done for you respond in a way. And he says in verse eight, notice what he said. I speak not by commandment. Blows your mind, doesn't it? It's almost as if Paul knew what? It's not the law. It isn't a duty. Let it be a desire. You have all these other desires, aware of all these things that God has done. Be aware of this aspect that God is presently ministering to you as well. He says, I'm not speaking by commandment, but I'm testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. It's a test of love. All this is what? What's your response of your heart? What is God doing? In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, I want to read it to you. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for the Lord loves a cheerful giver. He says, give what's in your heart. He says, then if you're concerned that, oh man, I got to give to God, or oh my goodness, you know, I don't, I don't want the church to benefit, or I think maybe Lowell is trying to rip us off and he wants to buy another house in Mequon or something. Well, I don't know what he's going to do. Well, realize that if that's the case, then don't give. Just keep your money, go buy a burger, give it to some other great, you know, ministry. Give it to the Milwaukee Rescue Mission. Read their statement of faith. Beautiful. If that's what you want to do, then do that. However, if you're receiving the spiritual and you realize we're receiving life and we're receiving something that's eternal and God puts it upon your heart and you're overwhelmed by it, then, then let the abundance of your heart say, oh, how can I thank God for what he's doing? And how can we assist getting this word out to more people who need it? And how can we get it out and, and you know, say where we're putting it out on the airways and we're getting this software so people can grab it and, and it won't have this 10 minute, you know, vocal delay and all these other fixes that we're trying to do. These things, you know, keep in mind, God's called us to do it. We're walking these things. Let each one gives as he purposes in his heart, not let each one gives as the law demands. And this is so needed to recognize that in your own hearts, let God meet with you. Let God come and refresh you. Let God bless you. Exactly what we see here that God did to Abraham. 
And as this Melchizedek, who is the type of Christ, which means what? That Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, God Almighty says what? I'm going to come and meet with you. Who am I? Who are we that God would say, I'm going to come and meet with you? And then I'm going to refresh you. I'm going to make sure that you're aware of what my blood and my body has done in the forgiveness of sin that now you realize I'm forgiven, not by keeping the law, not by not keeping the what I shouldn't do in the law, but by re just responding because my heart is now open. And it frees us up to walk these truths. And so if you are aware that God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords said, I'm going to humble myself and I want to meet with you. And not only am I going to meet with you once a year and allow just one man to have access, but you I will meet with every minute of every day of every year. And you will have access behind the veil continually. And you will be in the very presence of God while I'm sitting on the right hand, ever making intercession. And if that ministers to you, if that refreshes you, if that blesses you, and then to realize not only are you doing that, but then you bless me. All the promises of God in Jesus Christ are yes and amen. And he's blessed me and he's blessed me. And now I'm just overwhelmed and I'm about to explode. And if God says, here's how you respond. Here's how you respond. And let me tell you, you don't respond by writing a check and putting it in the box. You respond by loving God in whichever way he puts it upon your heart. That you say, this response that I'm doing tells me one thing. And I want you to know I'm aware of this thing you're doing in my life. And I want you to know that I'm aware of it. And I'm going to respond in gratitude. I'm going to respond because it's a desire. Because if I don't respond, I'm going to explode. My heart is going to explode. I need to let you know, Lord, how much I'm aware of this. That needs to be the heart. And so I love it. Respond in the way that you desire to worship. That your heart is telling you, worship in this way. It has nothing to do with the law anymore because as the priesthood has changed, I hate to say it, of necessity, there had to be a change of the law. And then he would make that statement, for on one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. It didn't really open your eyes to what God was doing. You just did it as a road. But if you really focused and grew to why should I do this, then it's going to show you, God, oh, it's because you've done this and because you've done this. And this is a natural response that should be in my heart. I just didn't see it because sin got in the way. Sin has hardened my heart and blinded my eyes. And, and you through your spirit are going to just make my heart soft again and open again to your leading. I'll tell you what, what a great message on tithe, huh? Father, we are grateful for you, grateful for what your heart, and it is our desire to worship, just a desire. Lord, we want to be aware of just everything you're doing, so Lord, put it upon our hearts, all that you're doing for us, all that you're doing and all that you've done, the blessings that you've poured out. 
the very fact that you're present with us and have ushered us in behind the veil and there we are with you and God and you're there on his right hand making intercession for every foible and foul up we're doing. Lord, we are so grateful. Soften our hearts, touch our hearts, draw us to you. We ask this in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, Amen.